Chapter 14 of The Queen's Necklace by Alexander Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Monsieur Fingret. Madame de Lamotte, looking at all this, began to perceive how much she wanted. She wanted a drawing-room to hold sofas and lounging chairs, a dining-room for tables and sideboards, and a boudoir for Persian curtains, screens, and knick-knacks. Above all, she wanted the money to buy all these things, but in Paris, whatever you cannot afford to buy, you can hire. And Madame de Lamotte set her heart on a set of furniture covered in yellow silk with gilt nails, which she thought would be very becoming to her dark complexion. But this furniture, she felt sure, would never go into her rooms on the fifth story. It would be necessary to hire the third, which was composed of an antechamber, a dining-room, small drawing-room, and bedroom, so that she might, she thought, receive on this third story the visits of the cardinal, and on the fifth those of ladies of charity. That is to say, receive in luxury those who give from ostentation, and in poverty those who only desire to give when it is needed. The countess, having made all these reflections, turned to where Monsieur Fingray himself stood, with his hat in his hand, waiting for her commands. "'Madame,' said he in a tone of interrogation, advancing towards her, "'Madame la Comtesse de la Motte Valois,' said Jean. At this high-sounding name, Monsieur Fingray bowed low and said, "'But there is nothing in this room worthy Madame la Comtesse's inspection. If Madame will take the trouble to step into the next one, she will see what is new and beautiful.' Jean colored. All this had seemed so splendid to her, too splendid even to hope to possess it, and this high opinion of Monsieur Fingray's concerning her perplexed her not a little. She regretted that she had not announced herself as a simple bourgeoisie, but it was necessary to speak, so she said, "'I do not wish for new furniture.' "'Madame has doubtless some friends' apartments to furnish.' "'Just so,' she replied. "'Will Madame then choose?' said Monsieur Fingray, who did not care whether he sold new or old, as he gained equally with both. "'This set,' said Jean, pointing to the yellow silk one. "'That is such a small set, madame.' "'Oh, the rooms are small.' "'It is nearly new, as madame may see.' "'But the price?' Eight hundred francs. The price made the countess tremble. And how was she to confess that a countess was content with second-hand things, and then could not afford to pay eight hundred francs for them? She therefore thought the best thing was to appear angry, and said, "'Who thinks of buying, sir? Who do you think would buy such old things? I only want to hire.' Fingray made a grimace. His customer began gradually to lose her value in his eyes. She did not want to buy new things, only to hire old things. "'You wish it for a year?' he asked. "'No, only for a month. It is for someone coming from the country.' "'It will be one hundred francs a month.' 
you jest surely monsieur why in eight months i should have paid the full price of it granted madame la comtesse well is not that too bad i shall have the expense of doing it up again when you return it madame de lamotte reflected one hundred francs a month is very dear certainly but either i can return it at the end of that time and say it is too dear or i shall then perhaps be in a situation to buy i will take it she said with curtains to match yes madame and carpets here they are what can you give me for another room these oak chairs this table with twisted legs and green damask curtains and for a bedroom a large and handsome bed a counterpane of velvet embroidered in rose colour and silver an excellent couch and blue curtains and for my dressing-room a toilet-table hung with mechlin lace chests of drawers with marqueterie sofa and chairs of tapestry the whole came from the bedroom of madame de pompadour at choisy all this for what price for a month yes four hundred francs come monsieur fringray do not take me for a grisette who is dazzled by your fine descriptions please to reflect that you are asking at the rate of four thousand eight hundred francs a year and for that i can take a whole furnished house you disgust me with the place royale i am very sorry madame prove it then i will only give half that price jeanne pronounced these words with so much authority that the merchant began again to think she might be worth conciliating so be it then madame and on one condition monsieur fingray what madame that everything be arranged in its proper place by three o'clock but consider madame it is now ten can you do it or not where must they go rue saint claude close by precisely the upholsterer opened a door and called sylvain landry remy three men answered to the call the carts and the trucks instantly remy you shall take this yellow furniture sylvain you take that for the dining-room and you landry that for the bedroom here is the bill madame shall i receipt it here are six double louis she said and you can give the change to these men if the order is complete in time and having given her address she re-entered her coach on her return she engaged the third floor and in a few hours all was in order the lodgings thus transformed the windows cleaned and the fires lighted jeanne went again to her toilet which she made as recherche as possible and then took a last look at all the delights around her nothing had been forgotten there gilded branches from the walls for wax lights and glass lustres on each side of the mirror 
Jean had also added flowers to complete the embellishment of the paradise in which she intended to receive his eminence. She took care even to leave the door of the bedroom a little open, through which the light of a bright fire gave a glimpse of the luxuries within. All these preparations completed, she seated herself in a chair by the fire, with a book in her hand, listening eagerly to the sound of every carriage that passed. But nine, ten, and eleven o'clock struck, and no one came. Still, she did not despair. It was not too late for a gallant prelate, who had probably been first to some supper, and would come to her from there. But at last twelve struck. No one appeared. The lights were burning low, and the old servant, after many lamentations over her new cap, had fallen asleep in her chair. At half-past twelve, Jean rose furious from her chair, looked out of the window for the hundredth time, and, seeing no one near, undressed herself and went to bed, refusing supper or to answer any of the remarks made to her by Clotilda, and on her sumptuous bed, under her beautiful curtains, she experienced no better rest than she had on the previous night. At last, however, her anger began a little to abate, and she commenced framing excuses for the cardinal. He had so much to occupy him. He must have been detained, and, most potent of all, he had not yet seen her. She would not have been so easily consoled if he had broken the promise of a second visit. End of chapter 14 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Chapter 15 of The Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Cardinal de Rohan The next evening, Jean, not discouraged, renewed all her preparations of the night before, and on this occasion she had no time to grow impatient, for at seven o'clock a carriage drove up to the door, from which a gentleman got out. At the sound of the doorbell, Jean's heart beat so loud that you might almost have heard it. However, she composed herself as well as she could, and in a few minutes Clotilda opened the door, and announced the person who had written the day before yesterday. "'Let him come in,' said Jean and the gentleman dressed in silk and velvet, and with a lofty carriage entered the room. Jean made a step forward and said, "'To whom have I the honor of speaking?' "'I am the Cardinal de Rohan,' he replied, and which Madame de Lamotte, feigning to be overwhelmed with the honor, courtesied as though he were a king. Then she advanced an armchair for him and placed herself in another. The cardinal laid his hat on the table, and, looking at Jeanne, began, "'It is then true, mademoiselle?' "'Madame,' interrupted Jeanne, "'pardon me, I forgot. "'My husband is called de Lamotte, monseigneur.' "'Oh, yes, a gendarme, is he not?' "'Yes, sir.' "'And you, madame, 
are a valois i am monseigneur a great name said the cardinal but rare believed extinct not extinct sir since i bear it and as i have a brother baron de valois recognized that has nothing to do with it recognized or unrecognized rich or poor he is still baron de valois madame explain to me this descent it interests me i love heraldry jean repeated all that the reader already knows the cardinal listened and looked he did not believe either her story or her merit but she was poor and pretty so that he said carelessly when she had finished you have really been unfortunate i do not complain monseigneur indeed i had heard a most exaggerated account of the difficulties of your position this lodging is commodious and well furnished for a grisette no doubt replied jeanne what do you call these rooms fit for a grisette i do not think you can call them fit for a princess replied jeanne and you are a princess said he in an ironical tone i was born a valois monseigneur as you were a rohan said jeanne with so much dignity that he felt a little touched by it madame said he i forgot that my first words should have been an apology i wrote to you that i would come yesterday but i had to go to versailles to assist at the reception of monsieur de souffrin monseigneur does me too much honour in remembering me to-day and my husband will more than ever regret the exile to which poverty compels him since it prevents him from sharing this favour with me you live alone madame asked the cardinal absolutely alone i should be out of place in all society but that from which my poverty debars me the genealogists do not contest your claim no but what good does it do me madame continued the cardinal i shall be glad to know in what i can serve you in nothing monseigneur she said how in nothing pray be frank i cannot be more frank than i am you were just complaining now certainly i complain well then well then monseigneur i see that you wish to bestow charity on me oh madame yes sir i have taken charity but i will do so no more i have borne great humiliation madame you are wrong there is no humiliation in misfortune not even with the name i bear would you beg monsieur de rohan i do not speak of myself said he with an embarrassment mingled with hauteur monseigneur 
I only know two ways of begging, in a carriage, or at a church door, in velvet or in rags. Well, just now I did not expect the honor of this visit. I thought you had forgotten me. Oh, you knew then that it was I who wrote. Were not your arms on the seal? However, you feigned not to know me. "'because you did not do me the honor to announce yourself.' "'This pride pleases me,' said the cardinal. "'I had then,' continued Jean, "'despairing of seeing you, "'taken the resolution of throwing off all this flimsy parade, "'which covers my real poverty, "'and of going in rags like other mendicants "'to beg my bread from the passers-by.' "'You are not at the end of your resources, I trust, madame.' Jean did not reply. "'You have some property, even if it be mortgaged, some family jewels, this, for example.' And he pointed to a box, with which the delicate fingers of the lady had been playing. "'A singular box, upon my word. Will you permit me to look?' "'Oh!' a portrait he continued with a look of great surprise do you know the original of this portrait asked jean it is that of maria teresa of maria teresa yes the empress of austria really cried jean are you sure monseigneur where did you get it he asked. From a lady who came the day before yesterday. To see you? Yes. The cardinal examined the box with minute attention. There were two ladies, continued Jean. And one of them gave you this box, said he with evident suspicion. No, she dropped it here. The cardinal remained thoughtful for some time, and then said, "'What was the name of this lady? I beg pardon for being inquisitive.' "'Indeed, it is a somewhat strange question.' "'Indiscreet, perhaps, but not strange.' "'Yes, very strange. For if I had known her name, I should have returned it long before this.' then you know not who she is i only know she is the head of some charitable house in paris no in versailles from versailles the head of a charitable house monseigneur i accept charity from ladies that does not so much humiliate a poor woman and this lady who had heard of my wants left a hundred louis on my table when she went away a hundred louis said the cardinal in surprise then fearing to offend he added i am not astonished madame that they should give you such a sum you merit on the contrary all the solicitude of charitable people and your name makes it a duty to help you it is only the title of the sister of charity that surprised me 
they are not in the habit of giving such donations could you describe this lady to me not easily sir how so since she came here yes but she probably did not wish to be recognized for she hid her face as much as possible in her hood and was besides enveloped in furs well but you saw something my impressions were that she had blue eyes and a small mouth although the lips were rather thick tall or short of middle height her hands perfect her throat long and slender her expression severe and noble but you perhaps know this lady monseigneur why should you think so madame from the manner in which you question me besides there is a sympathy between the doers of good works no madame i do not know her but sir if you had some suspicion how should i oh from this portrait perhaps yes certainly the portrait said the cardinal rather uneasily well sir this portrait you still believe to be that of maria teresa i believe so certainly then you think that you have received a visit from some german lady who has founded one of these houses but it was evident that the cardinal doubted and he was pondering how this box which he had seen a hundred times in the hands of the queen came into the possession of this woman had the queen really been to see her if she had been was she indeed unknown to jeanne or if not why did she try to hide the knowledge from him if the queen had really been there it was no longer a poor woman he had to deal with but a princess succored by a queen who bestowed her gifts in person jeanne saw that the cardinal was thoughtful and even suspicious of her she felt uneasy and knew not what to say at last however he broke the silence by saying and the other lady oh i could see her perfectly she is tall and beautiful with a determined expression and a brilliant complexion and the other lady did not name her yes once but by her christian name what was it andrea andrea repeated the cardinal with a start the name put an end to all his doubts it was known that the queen had gone to paris on that day with mademoiselle de tavernay it was evident also that jeanne had no intention of deceiving him she was telling all she knew still he would try one more proof countess he said one thing astonishes me that you have not addressed yourself to the king but sir i have sent him twenty petitions without result yes well then the princes of the blood monsieur le duc d'orleans is charitable and often likes to do what the king refuses 
I have tried him equally fruitless. That astonishes me. Oh, when one is poor and not supported by any one, there is still the Comte d'Artois. Sometimes dissipated men do more generous actions than charitable ones. It is the same story with him. But the princesses, the aunts of the king, Madame Elizabeth particularly, would refuse assistance to no one. It is true, Monseigneur. Her Royal Highness, to whom I wrote, promised to receive me, but I know not why, after having received my husband, I could never get any more notice from her. It is strange, certainly, said the cardinal. Then, as if the thought had just struck him, he cried, Ah, mon Dieu! But we are forgetting the person to whom you should have addressed yourself first of all. Whom do you mean? The dispenser of all favors, she who never refuses help where it is deserved. To the queen! have you seen her no answered jean you have never presented your petition to the queen never you have not tried to obtain an audience of her i have tried but failed have you tried to throw yourself in her way that she might remark you no monseigneur but that is very strange i have only been twice to versailles and then saw but two persons there one was dr louis who had attended my poor father at the hotel Dieu, and the other was monsieur le baron de tavernay to whom i had an introduction what did monsieur de tavernay say to you he might have brought you to the queen he told me that I was very foolish to bring forward as a claim to the benevolence of the king a relationship which would be sure to displease him, as nobody likes poor relations. I recognize the egotistical and rude old baron. <laughs> well, continued he, I will conduct you myself to Versailles and will open the doors for you. Oh, Monseigneur! how good you are cried jeanne overwhelmed with joy the cardinal approached her and said it is impossible but that before long all must interest themselves in you alas monseigneur said jeanne with a sigh do you think so i am sure of it i fear you flatter me she said looking earnestly at him for she could hardly believe in his sudden change of manner. He had been so cold and suspicious at first. This look had no small effect on the cardinal. He began to think he had never met a woman prettier or more attractive. "'Ah! Ma foi!' said he to himself, with the eternally scheming spirit of a man used to be diplomacy. "'It would be too extraordinary.' and too fortunate if i have met at once an honest woman with the attractions of a scheming one and found in this poverty an able coadjutrix to my desires
monseigneur the silence you keep every now and then disquiets me why so countess because a man like you only fails in politeness to two kinds of women mon dieu countess you frighten me what are you about to say and he took her hand i repeat it said she with women that you love too much or with women whom you do not esteem enough to be polite to countess you make me blush have i then failed in politeness toward you rather so monseigneur and yet you cannot love me too much and i have given you no cause to despise me oh countess you speak as if you were angry with me no monseigneur you have not yet merited my anger and i never will madame from this day in which i have had the pleasure of making your acquaintance my solicitude for you will not cease oh sir do not speak to me of your protection oh mon dieu i should humiliate myself not you in mentioning such a thing and he pressed her hand which he continued to hold to his lips she tried to withdraw it but he said only politeness madame and she let it remain to know said she that i shall occupy a place however small in the mind of a man so eminent and so busy would console me for a year let us hope the consolation will last longer than that countess well perhaps so monseigneur i have confidence in you besides i feel that you are capable of appreciating a mind like mine adventurous brave and pure in spite of my poverty and of the enemies which my position has made me your eminence will i am sure discover all the good that is in me and be indulgent to all the rest we are then warm friends madame and he advanced toward her but his arms were a little more extended than the occasion required she avoided him and said laughing it must be a friendship among three cardinal among three doubtless for there exists in exile a poor gendarme who is called monsieur de lamotte oh countess what a deplorably good memory you have i must speak to you of him that you may not forget him do you know why i do not speak of him countess no pray tell me because he will speak enough for himself husbands never let themselves be forgotten we shall hear that monsieur le comte de lamotte found it good or found it bad that the cardinal de rohan came two three or four times a week to visit his wife ha huh. but you will come so often monseigneur without that where would be our friendship four times i should have said six or seven jean laughed i should not indeed wonder in that case if people did talk of it oh but we can easily prevent them how quite easily 
the people know me certainly monseigneur but you they have the misfortune not to know well therefore if you would what sir come out instead of me come to your hotel monseigneur you would go to see a minister oh a minister is not a man you are adorable countess but i did not speak of my hotel i have a house oh a petite maison no a house of yours a house of mine cardinal indeed i did not know it to-morrow at ten o'clock you shall have the address the countess blushed the cardinal took her hand again and imprinted another kiss upon it at once bold respectful and tender they then bowed to each other light monseigneur down said the countess and he went away well thought she i have made a great step in the world come said the cardinal to himself as he drove off i think i have killed two birds with one stone this woman has too much talent not to catch the queen as she has caught me end of chapter fifteen recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter sixteen of the queen's necklace by alexander dumas translated by henry l williams this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mesmer and St. Martin The fashionable study in Paris at this time, and that which engrossed most of those who had no business to attend to, was mesmerism, a mysterious science, badly defined by its discoverers, who did not wish to render it too plain to the eyes of the people. Dr. Mesmer, who had given to it his own name, was then in Paris, as we have already heard from Marie Antoinette, this Dr. Mesmer deserves a few words from us, as his name was then in all mouths. He had brought this science from Germany, the land of mysteries, in 1777. He had previously made his debut there, by a theory on the influence of the planets. He had endeavored to establish that these celestial bodies, through the same power by which they attract each other, exercised an influence over living bodies, and particularly over the nervous system by means of a subtle fluid with which the air is impregnated. But this first theory was too abstract. One must, to understand it, be initiated into all the sciences of Galileo or Newton, and it would have been necessary for this to have become popular, that the nobility should have been transformed into a body of savants. He therefore abandoned this system and took up that of the lodestone, which was then attracting great attention people fancying that this wonderful power was efficacious in curing illnesses. Unhappily for him, however, he found a rival in this already established in Vienna. Therefore, he once more announced that he abandoned mineral magnetism and intended to effect his cures through animal magnetism. This, although a new name, was not in reality a new science. It was as old as the Greeks and Egyptians, and had been preserved in traditions, and revived every now and then by the sorcerers of the thirteenth, fourteenth, and fifteenth centuries, many of whom had paid for their knowledge with their lives. Urban Grandier was nothing but an animal magnetizer, and Joseph Balsamo we have seen practicing it. 
Mesmer only condensed this knowledge into a science, and gave it a name. He then communicated his system to the scientific academies of Paris, London, and Berlin. The two first did not answer him, and the third said that he was mad. He came to France, and took out of the hands of Dr. Stork and of the occultist Vincel, a young girl seventeen years old, who had a complaint of the liver and gutta serena, and after three months of his treatment restored her health and her sight. This cure convinced many people, and among them a doctor called Deslon, who, from his enemy, became his pupil. From this time his reputation gradually increased. The academy declared itself against him, but the court for him. At last the government offered him, in the king's name, an income for life of twenty thousand francs to give lectures in public, and ten thousand more to instruct three persons who should be chosen by them in his system. Mesmer, however, indignant at the royal parsimony, refused, and set out for the spa waters with one of his patients. But while he was gone, Deslon, his pupil, possessor of the secret which he had refused to sell for thirty thousand francs a year, opened a public establishment for the treatment of patients. Mesmer was furious, and exhausted himself in complaints and menaces. One of his patients, however, Monsieur de Bergasse, conceived the idea of forming a company. They raised a capital of three hundred and forty thousand francs, on the condition that the secret should be revealed to the shareholders. It was a fortunate time. The people, having no great public events to interest them, entered eagerly into every new amusement and occupation. And this mysterious theory possessed no little attraction, professing as it did, to cure invalids, restore mind to the fools, and amuse the wise. Everywhere Mesmer was talked of. What had he done? On whom had he performed these miracles? To what great lord had he restored sight? To what lady? Worn out with dissipation, had he renovated the nerves? To what young girl had he shown the future in a magnetic trance? The future. That word of ever-entrancing interest and curiosity. Voltaire was dead. There was no one left to make France laugh except perhaps Beaumarchais, who was still more bitter than his master. Rousseau was dead, and with him the sect of religious philosophers. War had generally occupied strongly the minds of the French people, but now the only war in which they were engaged was in America, where the people fought for what they called independence, and what the French called liberty. And even this distant war in another land, and affecting another people, was on the point of termination. Therefore they felt more interest just now in Monsieur Mesmer, who was near than in Washington or Lord Cornwallis, who were so far off. Mesmer's only rival in the public interest was St. Martin, the professor of spiritualism, as Mesmer was of materialism, and who professed to cure souls as he did bodies. Imagine, an atheist with a religion more attractive than religion itself, a republican full of politeness and interest for kings, a gentleman of the privileged classes, tender and solicitous for the people, endowed with the most startling eloquence, attacking all the received religions of the earth. Imagine Epicurus, in white powder, embroidered coat and silk stockings, not content with endeavoring to overturn a religion in which he did not believe, but also attacking all existing governments, and promulgating the theory that all men are equal, or, to use his own words, that all intelligent beings are kings. 
imagine the effect of all this in society as it then was without fixed principles or steady guides and how it was all assisting to light the fire with which france not long after began to consume herself end of chapter 16 recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter Seventeen of the Queen's Necklace by Alexander Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Bucket. We have endeavored to give an idea in the last chapter of the interest and enthusiasm which drew such crowds of the people to see Monsieur Mesmer perform publicly his wonderful experiments. The king, as we know, had given permission to the queen to go and see what all Paris was talking of, accompanied by one of the princesses. It was two days after the visit of Monsieur de Rohan to the Countess. The weather was fine, and the thaw was complete, and hundreds of sweepers were employed in cleaning away the snow from the streets. The clear blue sky was just beginning to be illumined by its first stars when Madame de Lamotte, elegantly dressed and presenting every appearance of opulence, arrived in a coach, which Clotilde had carefully chosen as the best looking in the Place Vendôme, and stopped before a brilliantly lighted house. It was that of Dr. Mesmer. Numbers of other carriages were waiting at the door, and a crowd of people had collected to see the patients arrive and depart, who seemed to derive much pleasure when they saw some rich invalid, enveloped in furs and satins, carried in by footmen, from the evident proof it afforded that God made men healthy or unhealthy, without reference to their purses or their genealogies. A universal murmur would arise when they recognized some duke paralyzed in an arm or leg, or some marshal whose feet refused their office, less in consequence of military fatigues and marches than from halts made with the ladies of the opera, or of the Comédie Italienne. Sometimes it was a lady carried in by her servants with drooping head and languid eye, who, weakened by late hours and an irregular life, came to demand from Dr. Mesmer the health she had vainly sought to regain elsewhere. Many of these ladies were as well known as the gentlemen, but a great many escaped the public gaze, especially on this evening, by wearing masks. For there was a ball at the opera that night, and many of them intended to drive straight there when they left the doctor's house. Through this crowd, Madame de Lamotte walked erect and firm, also with a mask on, and elicited only the acclamation, "'This one does not look ill at all events.' Ever since the cardinal's visit, the attention with which she had examined the box and portrait had been on Jean's mind, and she could not but feel that all his graciousness commenced after seeing it, and she therefore felt proportionate curiosity to learn more about it. First she had gone to Versailles to inquire at all the houses of charity about German ladies, but there were there perhaps a hundred and fifty or two hundred, and all Jean's inquiries about the two ladies who had visited her had proved fruitless. In vain she repeated that one of them was called Andrea. No one knew a German lady of that name, which indeed was not German. Baffled in this, she determined to try elsewhere, and, having heard much of Monsieur Mesmer and the wonderful secrets revealed through him, determined upon going there. Many were the stories of this kind in circulation. Madame de Dura had recovered a child who had been lost. Madame de Chantouet, an English dog, not much bigger than her fist, for which she would have given all the children in the world. And Monsieur de Vaudreuil, 
a lock of hair which he would have bought back with half his fortune all these revelations had been made by clairvoyance after the magnetic operations of dr mesmer those who came to see him after traversing the antechambers were admitted into a large room from which the darkened and hermetically closed windows excluded light and air in the middle of this room under a lustre which gave but a feeble light was a vast unornamented tank filled with water impregnated with sulphur and to the cover of which was fastened an iron ring attached to this ring was a long chain the object of which we shall presently see all the patients were seated round the room men and women indiscriminately then a valet taking the chain wound it round the limbs of the patients so that they might all feel at the same time the effects of the electricity contained in the tank they were then directed to touch each other in some way either by the shoulder the elbow or the feet and each was to take in his hand a bar of iron which was also connected with the tank and to place it to the heart head or whatever was the seat of the malady when they were all ready a soft and pleasing strain of music executed by invisible performers was heard among the most eager of the crowd on the evening of which we speak was a young distinguished-looking and beautiful woman with a graceful figure and rather showily dressed who pressed the iron to her heart with wonderful energy rolling her beautiful eyes and beginning to show in the trembling of her hands the first effects of the electric fluid as she constantly threw back her head resting it on the cushions of her chair all around could see perfectly her pale but beautiful face and her white throat many seemed to look at her with great astonishment and a general whispering commenced among those who surrounded her madame de lamotte was one of the most curious of the party and of all she saw around her nothing attracted her attention so much as this young lady and after gazing earnestly at her for some time she at last murmured oh it is she there is no doubt it is the lady who came to see me the other day convinced that she was not mistaken she advanced toward her congratulating herself that chance had effected for her what she had so long been vainly trying to accomplish but at this movement the young lady closed her eyes contracted her mouth and began to beat the air feebly with her hands which hands however did not seem to jean the white and beautiful ones she had seen in her room a few days before the patients now began to grow excited under the influence of the fluid men and women began to utter sighs and even cries moving convulsively their heads arms and legs then a man suddenly made his appearance no one had seen him enter you might have fancied he came out of the tank he was dressed in a lilac robe and held in his hand a long wand which he several times dipped into the mysterious tank then he made a sign the doors opened and twenty robust servants entered and seizing such of the patients as began to totter on their seats carried them into an adjoining room while this was going on madame de lamotte heard a man who had approached near the young lady before mentioned and who was in a perfect paroxysm of excitement say in a loud voice it is surely she jeanne was about to ask him who she was when her attention was drawn to two ladies who were just entering followed by a man who though disguised as a bourgeois had still the appearance of a servant the tourneur of one of these ladies struck jeanne so forcibly that she made a step toward them when a cry from the young woman near her startled every one the same man whom jeanne had heard speak before now called out but look gentlemen it is the queen the queen 
cried many voices in surprise the queen here the queen in that state impossible but look said he again do you know the queen or not indeed said many the resemblance is incredible monsieur said jeanne to the speaker who was a stout man with quick observant eyes did you say the queen oh madame there is no doubt of it and where is she why that young lady that you see there on the violet cushions and in such a state that she cannot moderate her transports is the queen but on what do you found such an idea monsieur simply because it is the queen and he left jeanne to go and spread his news among the rest she turned from the almost revolting spectacle and going near the door found herself face to face with the two ladies she had seen enter scarcely had she seen the elder one than she uttered a cry of surprise what is the matter asked the lady jeanne took off her mask and asked do you recognize me madame the lady made but quickly suppressed a movement of surprise and said no madame well madame i recognize you and will give you a proof and she drew the box from her pocket saying you left this at my house but supposing this to be true what makes you so agitated i am agitated by the danger that your majesty is incurring here explain yourself not before you have put on this mask and she offered hers to the queen who however did not take it i beg your majesty there is not an instant to lose the queen put on the mask and now pray come away added jeanne but why said the queen your majesty has not been seen by any one i believe not so much the better the queen mechanically moved to the door and said again will you explain yourself will not your majesty believe your humble servant for the present that you were running a great risk but what risk i will have the honor to tell your majesty whenever you will grant me an hour's audience but it would take too long now and seeing that the queen looked displeased pray madame said she turning to the princess lambaya join your petitions to mine that the queen should leave this place immediately i think we had better madame said the princess well then i will answered the queen then turning to madame de lamotte you ask for an audience she said i beg for that honour that i may explain this conduct to your majesty well bring this box with you and you shall be admitted laurent the porter shall have orders to do so then going into the street she called in german kommen sie da weber a carriage immediately drove up they got in and were immediately out of sight when they were gone madame de lamotte said to herself i have done right in this for the rest i must consider end of chapter seventeen Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.
Chapter Eighteen of the Queen's Necklace by Alexander Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mademoiselle Oliva. During this time, the man who had pointed out the fictitious queen to the people touched on the shoulder another man who stood near him in a shabby dress and said, "For you, who are a journalist, here is a fine subject for an article." "How so?" replied the man. "Shall I tell you?" certainly the danger of being governed by a king who is governed by a queen who indulges in such paroxysms as these the journalist laughed but the bastille he said pooh nonsense i do not mean you to write it out plainly who can interfere with you if you relate the history of prince silu and the princess etoniatna queen of narfek what do you say to that it is an admirable idea said the journalist and i do not doubt that a pamphlet called the paroxysms of the princess etoniatna at the house of the fakir remzem would have a great success i believe it also then go and do it the journalist pressed the hand of the unknown shall i send you some copies sir i will with pleasure if you will give me your name certainly the idea pleases me what is the usual circulation of your journal two thousand then do me a favor take these fifty louis and publish six thousand oh sir you overwhelm me may i not know the name of such a generous patron of literature you shall know when I call for one thousand copies, at two francs each, are they not? Will they be ready in a week? I will work night and day, monsieur. Let it be amusing. I shall make all Paris die with laughing, except one person. Who will weep over it? Apropos, date the publication from London. Sir, I am your humble servant and the journalist took his leave with his fifty louis in his pocket, highly delighted. The unknown again turned to look at the young woman, who had now subsided into a state of exhaustion and looked beautiful as she lay there. "'Really,' he said to himself, "'the resemblance is frightful. God had his motives in creating it, and has no doubt condemned her to whom the resemblance is so strong.' While he made these reflections, she rose slowly from the midst of the cushions, assisting herself with the arm of an attendant, and began to arrange her somewhat disordered toilet, and then traversed the rooms, confronting boldly the looks of the people. She was somewhat astonished, however, when she found herself saluted with deep and respectful bows by a group which had already been assembled by the indefatigable stranger, who kept whispering, "'Never mind, gentlemen, never mind, she is still the Queen of France.' let us salute her she next entered the courtyard and looked about for a coach or chair but seeing none was about to set off on foot when a footman approached and said shall i call madame's carriage i have none she replied madame came in a coach yes from the rue dauphine yes i will take madame home do so then 
said she, although somewhat surprised at the offer. The man made a sign, and a carriage drove up. He opened the door for her, then said to the coachman, "'To the Rue Dauphine!' They set off, and the young woman, who much approved of this mode of transit, regretted she had not further to go. They soon stopped, however. The footman handed her out and immediately drove off again. "'Really?' said she to herself. "'This is an agreeable adventure. It is very gallant of Monsieur Mesmer. Oh, I am very tired, and he must have foreseen that he is a great doctor.' Saying these words, she mounted to the second story and knocked at a door, which was quickly opened by an old woman. "'Is supper ready, mother?' "'Yes, and growing cold.' "'Has he come?' "'No, not yet, but the gentleman has.' "'What gentleman?' "'He who was to speak to you this evening.' "'To me?' "'Yes.' This colloquy took place in a kind of antechamber opening into her rooms, which was furnished with old curtains of yellow silk, chairs of green Utrecht velvet, not very new, and an old yellow sofa. She opened the door, and going in saw a man seated on the sofa whom she did not know in the least, although we do, for it was the same man whom we have seen taking so much interest in her at Mesmer's. She had not time to question him, for he began immediately— I know all that you are going to ask, and will tell you without asking. You are Mademoiselle Oliva, are you not? Yes, sir. A charming person, highly nervous, and much taken by the system of Monsieur Mesmer. I have just left there. All this, however, your beautiful eyes are saying plainly, does not explain what brings me here. You are right, sir. "'Will you not do me the favor to sit down? "'Or I shall be obliged to get up also, "'and that is an uncomfortable way of talking.' "'Really, sir, you have very extraordinary manners.' "'Mademoiselle, I saw you just now at Monsieur Mesmer's "'and found you to be all I could wish.' "'Sir, do not alarm yourself, mademoiselle. "'I do not tell you that I found you charming.' That would seem like a declaration of love, and I have no such intention. I know that you are accustomed to have yourself called beautiful, but I, who also think so, have other things to talk to you about. Really, sir, the manner in which you speak to me— Do not get angry before you have heard me. Is there any one that can overhear us? No, sir, no one— but still then if no one can hear us we can converse at our ease what do you say to a little partnership between us really sir do not misunderstand i do not say liaison i say partnership i am not talking of love but of business what kind of business said oliva with growing curiosity. "'What do you do all day?' "'Why, I do nothing, or at least as little as possible.' "'You have no occupation. So much the better. Do you like walking?' "'Very much.' "'To see sights, 
and go to balls excessively to live well above all things if i gave you twenty-five louis a month would you refuse me sir my dear mademoiselle oliva now you are beginning to doubt me again and it was agreed that you were to listen quietly i will say fifty louis if you like i like fifty louis better than twenty-five but what i like better than either is to be able to choose my own lover morbleu but i have already told you that i do not desire to be your lover set your mind at ease about that then what am i to do to earn my fifty louis you must receive me at your house and always be glad to see me walk out with me whenever i desire it and come to me whenever i send for you but i have a lover sir well dismiss him oh both sire cannot be sent away like that i will help you no i love him oh a little that is just a little too much i cannot help it then he may stop you are very obliging well but do my conditions suit you yes if you have told me all i believe i have said all i wish to say now on your honor on my honor very well then that is settled and here is the first month in advance he held out the money and as she still seemed to hesitate a little slipped it himself into her pocket scarcely had he done so when a knock at the door made oliva run to the window good god she cried escape quickly here he is who oh sire my lover be quick sir nonsense he will half murder you bah do you hear how he knocks well open the door and he sat down again on the sofa saying to himself i must see this fellow and judge what he is like the knocks became louder and mingled with oaths go mother and open the door cried oliva as for you sir if any harm happens to you it is your own fault end of chapter eighteen recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter nineteen of the queen's necklace by alexander dumas translated by henry l williams this librivox recording is in the public domain monsieur beausire oliva ran to meet a man who came in swearing furiously and in a frightful passion come beausire said she apparently not at all frightened let me alone cried he shaking her off brutally ha i see it was because there is a man here that the door was not opened and as the visitor remained perfectly still he advanced furiously towards him saying will you answer me sir what do you want to know my dear monsieur beausire what are you doing here and who are you i am a very quiet man and was simply talking to madame 
That was all, said Oliva. Will you hold your tongue? bawled Beausire. Now, said the visitor, do not be so rude to madame, who has done nothing to deserve it. And if you are in a bad temper— Yes, I am. He must have lost at cards, murmured Oliva. I am cleaned out, more de diable, cried Beausire. But you, sir, will do me the favor to leave this room. But, Monsieur Beausire— Diable, if you do not go immediately, it will be the worse for you. You did not tell me, mademoiselle, that he was troubled with these fits. Good heavens, what ferocity! Beausire, exasperated, drew his sword and roared, If you do not move, I will pin you to the sofa. Really, it is impossible to be more disagreeable, said the visitor, also drawing a small sword, which they had not before seen. Oliva uttered piercing shrieks. Oh, mademoiselle, pray be quiet, said he, or two things will happen. First, you will stun Monsieur Beausire, and he will get killed. Secondly, the watch will come up and carry you straight off to St. Lazare. Oliva ceased her cries. The scene that ensued was curious. Beausire, furious with rage, was making wild and unskillful passes at his adversary, who, still seated on the sofa, parried them with the utmost ease, laughing immoderately all the time. Beausire began to grow tired and also frightened, for he felt that if this man, who was now content to stand on the defensive, were to attack him in his turn, he should be done for in a moment. Suddenly, however, by a skilful movement the stranger sent Beausire's sword flying across the room. It went through an open window and fell into the street. "'Oh, Monsieur Beausire,' said he, "'you should take more care. If your sword falls on anyone, it will kill him.' Beausire ran down at his utmost speed to fetch his sword, and meanwhile Oliva, seizing the hand of the victor, said, "'Oh, sir, you are very brave.' But as soon as you are gone, Beausire will beat me. Then I will remain. Oh, no, when he beats me, I beat him in return, and I always get the best of it, because I am not obliged to take any care. So, if you would but go, sir. But, my dear, if I go now, I shall meet Monsieur Beausire on the stairs. Probably the combat will recommence. And as I shall not feel inclined to stand on the staircase, I shall have to kill Monsieur Beausire. Mon Dieu, it is true. Well, then, to avoid that, I will remain here. No, sir, I entreat. Go up to the next story, and as soon as he returns to this room, I will lock the door and take the key, and you can walk away while we fight it out. You are a charming girl. Au revoir. Till when? Tonight, if you please. Tonight? Are you mad? Not at all. But there is a ball at the opera tonight. But it is now midnight. That does not matter. I should want a domino. Beausire will fetch it when you have beaten him. You are right said Oliva, laughing. 
and here are ten louis to buy it with adieu and thanks and she pushed him out saying quick he is coming back but if by chance he should beat you how will you let me know she reflected a moment you have a servant yes send him here and let him wait under the window till i let a note fall i will adieu and he went upstairs oliva drowned the sound of his footsteps by calling loudly to beausire are you coming back madman for he did not seem in much hurry to re-encounter his formidable adversary at last however he came up oliva was standing outside the door she pushed him in locked it and put the key in her pocket before the stranger left the house he heard the noise of the combat begin in both voices loud and furious there is no doubt said he to himself that this woman knows how to take care of herself his carriage was waiting for him at the corner of the street but before getting in he spoke to the footman who thereupon stationed himself within view of mademoiselle oliva's windows end of chapter nineteen recording by john van stam savannah georgia chapter twenty of the queen's necklace by alexandre dumas translated by henry l williams this librivox recording is in the public domain gold we must now return to the interior of the room beausire was much surprised to see oliva lock the door and still more so not to see his adversary he began to feel triumphant for if he was hiding from him he must he thought be afraid of him he therefore began to search for him but oliva talked so loud and fast that he advanced towards her to try and stop her but was received with a box on the ear which he returned in kind oliva replied by throwing a china vase at his head and his answer was a blow with a cane she furious flew at him and seized him by the throat and he trying to free himself tore her dress then with a cry she pushed him from her with such force that he fell in the middle of the room he began to get tired of this so he said without commencing another attack you are a wicked creature you ruin me on the contrary it is you who ruin me oh i ruin her she who has nothing say that i have nothing now say that you have eaten and drank and played away all that i had you reproach me with my poverty yes for it comes from your vices do not talk of vices it only remained for you to take a lover and what do you call all those wretches who sit by you in the tennis court where you play i play to live and nicely you succeed we should die of hunger from your industry and you with yours are obliged to cry if you get your dress torn because you have nothing to buy another with i do better than you at all events and putting her hand in her pocket she drew out some gold and threw it across the room when beausire saw this he remained stupefied louis cried he at last she took out some more and threw them in his face oh cried he oliva has become rich 
this is what my industry brings in said she pushing him with her foot as he kneeled down to pick up the gold sixteen seventeen eighteen counted he joyfully miserable wretch said oliva nineteen twenty twenty one twenty two coward twenty three twenty four twenty five infamous wretch he got up and so mademoiselle you have been saving money when you kept me without necessaries you let me go about in an old hat darned stockings and patched clothes while you had all this money where does it come from from the sale of my things scoundrel murmured oliva looking at him with contempt but i pardon your avarice continued he you would have killed me just now said oliva then i should have been right now i should be wrong to do it why if you please because now you contribute to our menage you are a base wretch my little oliva give me back my money oh my darling if you do not i will pass your own sword through your body oliva will you give it oh you would not take it away oh, coward you beg you solicit for the fruits of my bad conduct that is what they call a man i have always despised you i gave to you when i could nicole do not call me nicole pardon then oliva but is it not true fine presents certainly some silver buckles six louis d'or two silk dresses and three embroidered handkerchiefs it is a great deal for a soldier hold your tongue the buckles you stole from someone else the louis d'or you borrowed and never returned the silk dresses oliva oliva give me back my money what shall i give you instead double the quantity well said the rogue gravely i will go to the rue de Bussy and play with it and bring you back not the double but the quintuple and he made two steps to the door she caught him by the coat there said he you have torn my coat never mind you shall have a new one that will be six louis oliva luckily at the rue de Bussy they are not particular about dress oliva seized hold of the other tail and tore it right off beausire became furious de tout le diable cried he you will make me kill you at last you are tearing me to bits now i cannot go out on the contrary you must go out immediately without a coat put on your greatcoat it is all in holes then do not put it on but you must go out 
I will not. She took out of her pocket another handful of gold and put it into his hands. Beausire kneeled at her feet and cried, Order, and I will obey. Go quickly to the Capuchin, Rue de Seine, where they sell dominoes for the Bal Masque, and buy me one complete mask and all. Good. And one for yourself. Black, but mine white, and I only give you twenty minutes to do it in. Are we going to the ball? Yes, if you are obedient. Oh, always. Go then, and show your zeal. I run, but the money. You have twenty-five louis that you picked up. Oh, um, Oliver, I thought you meant to give me those. You shall have more another time. But if I give you them now, you will stop and play. She is right, said he to himself. That is just what I intended to do. And he set off. As soon as he was gone, Oliver wrote rapidly these words. The piece is signed and the ball decided on. At two o'clock we shall be at the opera. I shall wear a white domino with a blue ribbon on my left shoulder. Then, rolling this round a bit of the broken vase, she went to the window and threw it out. The valet picked it up and made off immediately. In less than half an hour, Monsieur Beausire returned, followed by two men bringing, at the cost of eighteen louis, two beautiful dominoes, such as were only turned out at the Capuchin, makers to Her Majesty and the Maids of Honor. End of chapter 20 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter Twenty One of the Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. La Petite Maison. We left Madame de Lamotte at Monsieur Mesmer's door, watching the Queen's carriage as it drove off. Then she went home, for she also intended to put on a domino and indulge herself by going to the opera. But a contretemps awaited her. A man was waiting at her door with a note from the Cardinal de Rohan. She opened it and read as follows. Madame la Comtesse, you have doubtless not forgotten that we have business together. Even if you have a short memory, I never forget what has pleased me. I shall have the honor to wait for you where my messenger will conduct you, if you please to come. Jean, although rather vexed, immediately re-entered the coach and told the footman to get on the box with the coachman. Ten minutes sufficed to bring her to the entrance of the Faubourg Saint-Antoine, where, in a hollow and completely hidden by great trees, was one of those pretty houses built in the time of Louis XV, with all the taste of the sixteenth, with the comfort of the eighteenth century. Oh, ho! Oh, a petite maison, said she to herself. It is very natural on the part of Monsieur de Rohan, but very humiliating for Valois. But patience. She was led from room to room till she came to a small dining-room, fitted up with exquisite taste. There she found the cardinal waiting for her. He was looking over some pamphlets, but rose immediately on seeing her. Ah, here you are. Thanks, Madame la Comtesse. And he approached to kiss her hand but she drew back with a reproachful and indignant air. "'What is the matter, madame?' he asked. 
you are doubtless not accustomed monseigneur to receive such a greeting from the women whom your eminence is in the habit of summoning here oh madame we are in your petite maison are we not sir continued she looking disdainfully around her but madame i had hoped that your eminence would have deigned to remember in what rank i was born i had hoped that you would have been pleased to consider that if god has made me poor he has at least left me the pride of my race come come countess i took you for a woman of intellect you call a woman of intellect it appears monseigneur every one who is indifferent to and laughs at everything even dishonor to these women pardon me your eminence i have been in the habit of giving a different name no countess you deceive yourself i call a woman of intellect one who listens when you speak to her and does not speak before having listened i listen then i had to speak to you of serious matters countess therefore you receive me in a dining-room why would you have preferred my receiving you in a boudoir the distinction is nice said she i think so countess then i am simply to sup with you nothing else i trust your eminence is persuaded that i feel the honor as i ought you are quizzing countess no i only laugh would you rather i were angry you are difficult to please monseigneur oh you are charming when you laugh and i ask nothing better than to see you always doing so but at this moment you are not laughing oh no there is anger in that smile which shows your beautiful teeth not the least in the world monseigneur that is good and i hope you will sup well i shall sup well and you oh i am not hungry how madame you refuse to sup with me you send me away i do not understand you monseigneur listen dear countess if you were less in a passion i would tell you that it is useless to behave like this you are always equally charming but as at each compliment i fear to be dismissed i abstain you fear to be dismissed really i beg pardon of your eminence but you become unintelligible it is however quite clear what i say the other day when i came to see you you complained that you were lodged unsuitably to your rank i thought therefore that to restore you to your proper place would be like restoring air to the bird whom the experimenter has placed under his air-pump consequently beautiful countess that you might receive me with pleasure and that i on my part might visit you without compromising either you or myself he stopped and looked at her well she said i hoped that you would deign to accept this small residence you observe i do not call it petite maison 
except you give me this house monseigneur said jeanne her heart beating with eagerness a very small gift countess but if i had offered you more you would have refused oh monseigneur it is impossible for me to accept this impossible why do not say that word to me for i do not believe in it this house belongs to you the keys are here on this silver plate do you find out another humiliation in this no but then accept monseigneur i have told you how madame you write to the ministers for a pension you accept a hundred louis from an unknown lady oh monseigneur it is different come i have waited for you in your dining-room i have not yet seen the boudoir nor the drawing-room nor the bedrooms for i suppose there are all these oh monseigneur forgive me you force me to confess that you the most delicate of men and she blushed with the pleasure she had been so long restraining but checking herself she sat down and said now will your eminence give me my supper the cardinal took off his cloak and sat down also supper was served in a few minutes jeanne put on her mask before the servants came in it is i who ought to wear a mask said the cardinal for you are at home among your own people jeanne laughed but did not take hers off in spite of her pleasure and surprise she made a good supper the cardinal was a man of much talent and from his great knowledge of the world and of women he was a man difficult to contend with and he thought that this country girl full of pretension but who in spite of her pride could not conceal her greediness would be an easy conquest worth undertaking on account of her beauty and of a something piquant about her very pleasing to a man blasé like him he therefore never took pains to be much on his guard with her and she more cunning than he thought saw through his opinion of her and tried to strengthen it by playing the provincial coquette and appearing silly that her adversary might be in reality weak in his overconfidence the cardinal thought her completely dazzled by the present he had made her and so indeed she was but he forgot that he himself was below the mark of the ambition of a woman like jeanne come said he pouring out for her a glass of cypress wine as you have signed your contract with me you will not be unfriendly any more countess oh no you will receive me here sometimes without repugnance i shall never be so ungrateful as to forget whose house this really is not mine oh yes monseigneur do not contradict me i advise you or i shall begin to impose conditions you take care on your part of what why i am at home here you know and if your conditions are unreasonable i shall call my servants the cardinal laughed ha you laugh sir you think if i call they will not come oh you quite mistake countess i am nothing here only your guest 
apropos continued he as if it had just entered his head have you heard anything more of the ladies who came to see you the ladies of the portrait said jeanne who now knowing the queen saw through the artifice yes the ladies of the portrait monseigneur you know them as well and even better than i do i feel sure oh countess you do me wrong did you not express a wish to learn who they were certainly it is natural to desire to know your benefactors well if i knew i should have told you monsieur le cardinal you do know them no if you repeat that no i shall have to call you a liar i shall know how to avenge that insult how with a kiss you know the portrait of maria theresa certainly but what of that that having recognized this portrait you must have had some suspicion of the person to whom it belonged and why because it was natural to think that the portrait of a mother would only be in the hands of her daughter the queen cried the cardinal with so truthful a tone of surprise that it duped even jeanne do you really think the queen came to see you and you did not suspect it mon dieu no how should i i who speak to you am neither son daughter nor even relation of maria theresa yet i have a portrait of her about me at this moment look said he and he drew out a snuff-box and showed it to her therefore you see that if i who am in no way related to the imperial house carry about such a portrait another might do the same and yet be a stranger jeanne was silent she had nothing to answer then it is your opinion he went on that you have had a visit from the queen marie antoinette the queen and another lady madame de polignac i do not know perhaps madame de lombaire a young lady very beautiful and very serious oh perhaps mademoiselle de tavernay it is possible i do not know her well if her majesty has really come to visit you you are sure of her protection it is a great step toward your fortune i believe it monseigneur and her majesty was generous to you she gave me a hundred louis and she is not rich particularly now that doubles my gratitude did she show much interest in you very great then all goes well said the prelate there only remains one thing now to penetrate to versailles the countess smiled 
ah countess it is not so easy she smiled again more significantly than before really you provincials said he doubt nothing because you have seen versailles with the doors open and stairs to go up you think any one may open these doors and ascend these stairs have you seen the monsters of brass of marble and of lead which adorn the park and the terraces yes griffins gorgons ghouls and other ferocious beasts well you will find ten times as many and more wicked living animals between you and the favor of sovereigns your eminence will aid me to pass through the ranks of these monsters i will try but it will be difficult and if you pronounce my name if you discover your talisman it will lose all its power happily then i am guarded by the immediate protection of the queen and i shall enter versailles with a good key what key countess ha monsieur le cardinal that is my secret or rather it is not for if it were mine i should feel bound to tell it to my generous protector there is then an obstacle countess alas yes monseigneur it is not my secret and i must keep it let it suffice you to know that to-morrow i shall go to versailles that i shall be received and i have every reason to hope well received the cardinal looked at her with wonder <laughs> countess said he laughing i shall see if you will get in you will push your curiosity so far as to follow me exactly very well really countess you are a living enigma one of those monsters who inhabit versailles oh you believe me a man of taste do you not certainly monseigneur well here i am at your knees and i take your hand and kiss it should i do that if i thought you a monster i beg you sir to remember said jean coldly that i am neither a grisette nor an opera girl that i am my own mistress feeling myself the equal of any man in this kingdom therefore i shall take freely and spontaneously when it shall please me the man who will have gained my affections therefore monseigneur respect me a little and in me the nobility to which we both belong the cardinal rose i see said he you wish me to love you seriously i do not say that but i wish to be able to love you when that day comes if it does come you will easily find it out believe me if you do not i will let you know it for i feel young enough and attractive enough not to mind making the first advances nor to fear a repulse countess if it depends upon me you shall love me we shall see you have already a friendship for me have you not more than that 
oh, then we are at least halfway and you are a woman that i should adore if he stopped and sighed well said she if if you would permit it perhaps i shall when i shall be independent of your assistance and you can no longer suspect that i encourage you from interested motives then you forbid me to pay my court now not at all but there are other ways besides kneeling and kissing hands well countess let us hear what will you permit all that is compatible with my tastes and duties oh that is vague indeed stop i was going to add my caprices i am lost you draw back no said the cardinal i do not well then i want a proof speak i want to go to the ball at the opera well countess that only concerns yourself are you not free as air to go where you wish ah but you have not heard all i want you to go with me i to the opera countess said he with a start of horror see already how much your desire to please me is worth a cardinal cannot go to a ball at the opera countess it is as if i proposed to you to go to a public house then a cardinal does not dance i suppose oh no but i have read that monsieur le cardinal de richelieu danced a sarabande yes before anne of austria before a queen repeated jean perhaps you would do as much for a queen the cardinal could not help blushing dissembler as he was it is not natural she continued that i should feel hurt when after all your protestations you will not do as much for me as you would for a queen especially when i only ask you to go concealed in a domino and a mask besides a man like you who may do anything with impunity the cardinal yielded to her flattery and her blandishments taking her hand he said for you i will do anything even the impossible thanks monseigneur you really are amiable but now you have consented i will let you off no no he who does the work can alone claim the reward countess i will attend you but in a domino we shall pass through the rue st denis close to the opera said the countess i will go in masked buy a domino and a mask for you and you can put them on in the carriage that will do delightfully oh monseigneur you are very good but now i think of it perhaps at the hotel rohan you might find a domino more to your taste than the one i should buy now countess that is unpardonable malice believe me if i go to the opera 
i shall be as surprised to find myself there as you were to find yourself supping tete a tete with a man not your husband jean had nothing to reply to this soon a carriage without arms drove up they both got in and drove off at a rapid pace end of chapter twenty one recording by john van stan savannah georgia When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 22 of The Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Some words about the opera. The opera. That temple of pleasure at Paris was burned in the month of June, 1781. Twenty persons had perished in the ruins, and as it was the second time within eighteen years that this had happened, it created a prejudice against the place where it then stood in the Palais Royal, and the king had ordered its removal to a less central spot. The place chosen was Le Port Saint-Martin. The king, vexed to see Paris deprived for so long of its opera, became as sorrowful as if the arrivals of grain had ceased, or bread had risen to more than seven sous the quartern loaf. It was melancholy to see the nobility, the army, and the citizens without their after-dinner amusement, and to see the promenades thronged with the unemployed divinities from the chorus singers to the prima donnas an architect was then introduced to the king full of new plans who promised so perfect a ventilation that even in case of fire no one could be smothered he would make eight doors for exit besides five large windows placed so low that any one could jump out of them in the place of that beautiful hall of Miro, he was to erect a building with ninety-six feet of frontage toward the boulevard, ornamented with eighty caryatides on pillars forming three entrance doors, a bas-relief above the capitals, and a gallery with three windows. The stage was to be thirty-six feet wide, the theatre seventy-two feet deep and eighty across from one wall to the other. He asked only seventy-five days and nights before he opened it to the public. This appeared to all a mere gasconade and was much laughed at. The king, however, concluded the agreement with him. Lenoir set to work and kept his word. But the public feared that a building so quickly erected could not be safe, and when it opened, no one would go. Even the few courageous ones who did go to the first representation of Adèle de Ponteux made their wills first. The architect was in despair. He came to the king to consult him as to what was to be done. It was just after the birth of the Dauphine. All Paris was full of joy. The king advised him to announce a gratuitous performance in honor of the event, and give a ball after. Doubtless plenty would come, and if the theater stood, its safety was established. "'Thanks, sire,' said the architect. "'But reflect first, said the king. "'If there be a crowd, are you sure of your building?' "'Sire, I am sure.' and shall go there myself i will go to the second representation said the king the architect followed this advice 
They played Adèle de Pondieu to three thousand spectators who afterwards danced. After this there could be no more fear. It was three years afterwards that Madame de Lamotte and the Cardinal went to the ball. End of chapter 22 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 23 of The Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Ball at the Opera The ball was at its height when they glided in quietly, and were soon lost in the crowd. A couple had taken refuge from the pressure under the Queen's box. One of them wore a white domino and the other a black one. They were talking with great animation. "'I tell you, Oliva,' said the black domino, "'that I am sure you are expecting someone. Your head is no longer a head but a weathercock, and turns round to look after every newcomer.' "'Well, is it astonishing that I should look at the people, when that is what I came here for?' Oh. "'That is what you came for.' "'Well, sir, and for what do people generally come?' "'A thousand things.' "'Men, perhaps, but women only for one, to see and be seen by as many people as possible.' "'Mademoiselle Oliva.' "'Oh, do not speak in that big voice. It does so frighten me, and, above all, do not call me by name.' It is bad taste to let everyone here know who you are. The black domino made an angry gesture. It was interrupted by a blue domino who approached them. Come, monsieur, said he, let madame amuse herself. It is not every night one comes to a ball at the opera. Meddle with your own affairs, replied Beausire rudely. Monsieur. Learn once for all that a little courtesy is never out of place. I do not know you, he replied, and do not want to have anything to do with you. No, you do not know me, but I know you, Monsieur Beausire. At hearing his name thus pronounced, Beausire visibly trembled. Oh, do not be afraid, Monsieur Beausire. I am not what you take me for. Pardieu, sir! Do you guess thoughts as well as names? Why not? Then tell me what I thought. I have never seen a sorcerer and should find it amusing. Oh, what you ask is not difficult enough to entitle me to that name. Never mind. Tell. Well, then, you took me for an agent of Monsieur de Crosny. Monsieur de Crosny, he repeated. Yes, the lieutenant of police. Sir! Softly, Monsieur Beausire, you really look as if you were feeling for your sword. And so I was, sir. Good heavens! What a warlike disposition. But I think, dear Monsieur Beausire, you left your sword at home and you did well. But to speak of something else, will you relinquish to me, madame, for a time? Give you up, madame? Yes, sir. That is not uncommon, I believe, at a ball at the opera. Certainly not. When it suits the gentleman. It suffices sometimes that it should please the lady. Do you ask it for a long time? Really, Monsieur Beausire, 
you are too curious perhaps for ten minutes perhaps for an hour perhaps for all the evening you are laughing at me sir come reply will you or not no sir come come do not be ill-tempered you who were so gentle just now just now yes at the rue dauphine oliver laughed hold your tongue madame said beausire yes continued the blue domino where you were on the point of killing this poor lady but stopped at the sight of some louis oh i see you and she have an understanding together how can you say such a thing cried oliva and if it were so said the stranger it is all for your benefit for my benefit that would be curious i will prove to you that your presence here is as hurtful as your absence would be profitable you are a member of a certain academy not the academy francaise but in the rue de pot in the second story is it not my dear monsieur beausire hush said beausire the blue domino drew out his watch which was studded with diamonds that made beausire's eyes water to look at them well continued he in a quarter of an hour they are going to discuss their little project by which they hope to secure two million francs among the twelve members of whom you are one monsieur beausire and you must be another if you are not pray go on a member of the police <laughs> monsieur beausire i thought you had more sense if i were of the police i should have taken you long ago for some little affairs less honorable than this speculation so sir you wish to send me to the rue de pot fair but i know why that i may be arrested there i am not such a fool now you are one if i wanted to arrest you i had only to do it and i am rid of you at once but gentleness and persuasion are my maxims oh i know now said beausire you are the man that was on the sofa two hours ago what sofa never mind you have induced me to go and if you are sending a gallant man into harm you will pay for it some day be tranquil said the blue domino laughing by sending you there i give you a hundred thousand francs at least for you know the rule of this society is that whoever is absent loses his share well then good-bye said beausire and vanished the blue domino took possession of oliva's arm left at liberty by beausire now said she i have let you manage poor beausire at your ease but i warn you you will find me not so easy to talk over therefore find something pretty to say to me or i know nothing prettier than your own history dear mademoiselle nicole said he pressing the pretty round arm of the little woman who uttered a cry at hearing herself so addressed but recovering herself with marvellous quickness said oh mon dieu what a name is it i whom you call nicole if so 
you are wrong for that is not my name at present i know that you call yourself oliva but we will talk afterwards of oliva at present i want to speak of nicole have you forgotten the time when you bore that name i do not believe it my dear child for the name that one bears as a young girl is ever the one enshrined in the heart although one may have been forced to take another to hide the first poor oliva happy nicole why do you say poor oliva do you not think me happy it would be difficult to be happy with a man like beausire oliva sighed and said indeed i am not you love him however a little if you do not love him much leave him no why not because i should no sooner have done so than i should regret it do you think so i am afraid i should what could you have to regret in a drunkard a gambler a man who beats you and a blackleg who will one day come to the gallows you would not understand me if i told you try i should regret the excitement he keeps me in i ought to have guessed it that comes of passing your youth with such silent people you know about my youth perfectly oliva laughed and shook her head you doubt it really i do then we will talk a little about it mademoiselle nicole very well but i warn you i will tell nothing i do not wish it i do not mean your childhood i begin from the time when you first perceived that you had a heart capable of love love for whom for gilbert at this name oliva trembled ah, mon dieu she cried how do you know then with a sigh said oh, sir you have pronounced the name indeed fertile in remembrances you knew gilbert yes since i speak to you of him alas a charming lad upon my word you loved him he was handsome no perhaps not but i thought him so he was full of mind my equal in birth but gilbert thought no woman his equal not even mademoiselle de T oh i know whom you mean sir you are well instructed yes gilbert loved higher than the poor nicole you are possessed of terrible secrets sir tell me if you can she continued looking earnestly at him what has become of him you should know best why in heaven's name because if he followed you from tavernay to paris you followed him from paris to trianon yes that is true but that is ten years ago and i wish to know what had passed since the time i ran away and since he disappeared when gilbert loved mademoiselle de do not pronounce names aloud said he 
Well, then, when he loved her so much that each tree at Trianon was witness to his love, you loved him no more. On the contrary, I loved him more than ever, and this love was my ruin. I am beautiful, proud, and when I please, insolent, and would lay my head on the scaffold rather than confess myself despised. You have a heart, Nicole. I had then, she said, sighing. This conversation makes you sad. No, it does me good to speak of my youth, but tell me, why Gilbert fled from Trianon? Do you wish me to confirm a suspicion, or to tell you something you do not know? Something I do not know. Well, I cannot tell you this. Have you not heard that he is dead? Yes, I have. But... Well, he is dead. Dead, said Nicole with an air of doubt. Then, with a sudden start, Grant me one favor, she cried. As many as you like. I saw you two hours ago, for it was you, was it not? Certainly. You did not then try to disguise yourself? Not at all. But I was stupid. I saw you, but I did not observe you. I do not understand. Do you know what I want? No. Take off your mask. Here? Impossible! Oh, you cannot fear other people seeing you. Here, behind this column, you will be quite hidden. You fear that I should recognize you. You? And that I should cry, It is you! It is Gilbert! What folly! Take off your mask. Yes, on one condition, that you will take off yours if I ask it. Agreed. The unknown took off his immediately. Oliver looked earnestly at him, then sighed and said, Alas, no, it is not Gilbert. And who am I? Oh, I do not care, as you are not he. And if it had been Gilbert, said he as he put on his mask again, oh, if it had been, cried she passionately, and he had said to me, Nicole, do you remember Tavernet, Maison Rouge? Then there would have been no longer a boast, sire, in the world for me. But I have told you, my dear child, that Gilbert is dead. Huh. Perhaps then it is for the best, said Oliva with a sigh. Yes, he would never have loved you, beautiful as you are. Do you then think he despised me? No. He rather feared you. That is possible. Then you think it better he is dead? Do not repeat my words. In your mouth they wound me. 
but it is better for Mademoiselle Oliva. You observe I abandon Nicole and speak to Oliva. You have before you a future, happy, rich, and brilliant. Do you think so? Yes, if you make up your mind to do anything to arrive at this end. I promise you. But you must give up sighing, as you were doing just now. Very well. I sighed for Gilbert, and as he is dead, and there are not two Gilberts in the world, I shall sigh no more. But enough of him. Yes, we will speak of yourself. Why did you run away with Beausire? Because I wished to quit Trianon, and I was obliged to go with someone. I could no longer remain a pisalet, rejected by Gilbert. You have then been faithful for ten years through pride. You have paid dearly for it. Oliver laughed. Oh, I know what you are laughing at. To hear a man who pretends to know everything accuse you of having been ten years faithful when you have not rendered yourself worthy of such a ridiculous reproach. However, I know all about you. I know that you went to Portugal with Beausire, where you remained two years, that you then left him and went to the Indies with the captain of a frigate, who hid you in his cabin and who left you at Chan de Nagor when he returned to Europe. I know that you had two millions of rupees to spend in the house of a nabob who kept you shut up, that you escaped through the window on the shoulders of a slave. Then, rich, for you had carried away two beautiful pearl bracelets, two diamonds and three large rubies, you came back to France. When landing at Brest, your evil genius made you encounter Beausire on the quay, who recognized you immediately, bronzed and altered as you were, while you almost fainted at the sight of him. Oh, mon dieu, cried Oliva, who are you then, who know all this? I know further that Beausire carried you off again, persuaded you that he loved you, sold your jewels and reduced you to poverty. Still, you say you love him, and as love is the root of all happiness, of course, you ought to be happy. Oliva hung her head and covered her eyes with her hands, but two large tears might be seen forcing their way through her fingers. Liquid pearls, more precious though not so marketable as those both sire had sold. And this woman, at last she said, whom you describe as so proud and so happy, you have bought today for fifty louis. I am aware it is too little, mademoiselle. No, sir. On the contrary, I am surprised that a woman like me should be worth so much. You are worth more than that, as I will show you. But just now I want all your attention. Then I will be silent. No, talk, on the contrary of anything. It does not matter what, so that we seem occupied. You are very odd. Take hold of my arm and let us walk. They walked on among the various groups. In a minute or two, Oliva asked a question. Talk as much as you like. 
"'Only don't ask questions at present,' said her companion. "'For I cannot answer now. "'Only, as you speak, disguise your voice. "'Hold your head up, and scratch your neck with your fan.' "'She obeyed. "'In a minute they passed a highly perfumed group "'in the centre of which a very elegant-looking man "'was talking fast to three companions "'who were listening respectfully.' "'Who is that young man in that beautiful grey domino?' asked Oliva. "'Monsieur le Comte d'Artois, but pray do not speak just now.' At this moment two other dominoes passed them and stood in a place near which was rather free from people. "'Lean on this pillar, Countess,' said one of them in a low voice, but which was overheard by the blue domino who started at its sound. Then a yellow domino— Passing through the crowd, came up to the blue one and said, "'It is he.' "'Very good,' replied the other, and the yellow domino vanished. "'Now then,' said Oliva's companion, turning to her, "'we will begin to enjoy ourselves a little.' "'I hope so, for you have twice made me sad, first by taking away both, sire, and then by speaking of Gilbert.' "'I will be both Gilbert and Beausire to you,' said the unknown. "'Oh,' sighed Oliva, "'I do not ask you to love me, remember. "'I only ask you to accept the life I offer you, "'that is, the accomplishment of all your desires, "'provided occasionally you give way to mine. "'Just now I have one.' "'What?' "'That black domino that you see there,' is a german of my acquaintance who refused to come to the ball with me saying he was not well and now he is here and a lady with him who is she i don't know we will approach them i will pretend that you are a german and you must not speak for fear of being found out now pretend to point him out to me with the end of your fan like that yes very well now whisper to me oliva obeyed with a docility which charmed her companion the black domino who had his back turned to them did not see all this but his companion did take care monseigneur said she there are two masks watching us oh do not be afraid countess they cannot recognize us do not mind them but let me assure you that never form was so enchanting as yours never eyes so brilliant never hush the spies approach spies said the cardinal uneasily disguise your voice if they make you speak and i will do the same oliva and her blue domino indeed approached he came up to the cardinal and said mask what do you want said the cardinal in a voice as unlike his natural one as he could make it the lady who accompanies me desires me to ask you some questions ask said monsieur de rohan are they very indiscreet said madame de lamotte so indiscreet that you shall not hear them and he pretended to whisper to oliva who made a sign in answer then in irreproachable german he said to the cardinal monseigneur are you in love with the lady who accompanies you the cardinal trembled did you say monseigneur he asked 
yes you deceive yourself i am not the person you think oh monsieur le cardinal do not deny it it is useless if even i did not know you the lady who accompanies me assures me she knows you perfectly and he again whispered to oliva make a sign for yes do so each time i press your arm she did so you astonish me said the cardinal who is this lady oh monseigneur i thought you would have known she soon knew you it is true that jealousy madame is jealous of me cried the cardinal we do not say that replied the unknown rather haughtily what are you talking about asked madame de lamotte who did not like this conversation in german oh nothing nothing madame said the cardinal to oliva one word from you and i promise to recognize you instantly oliva who saw him speaking to her but did not understand a word whispered to her companion all this mystery piqued the cardinal one single german word he said could not much compromise madame the blue domino again pretended to take her orders and then said monsieur le cardinal these are the words of madame he whose thoughts are not ever on the alert he whose imagination does not perpetually suggest the presence of the loved one does not love however much he may pretend it the cardinal appeared struck with these words all his attitude expressed surprise respect and devotion it is impossible he murmured in french what is impossible asked madame de lamotte who seized eagerly on these few words she could understand nothing madame nothing really cardinal you are making me play but a sorry part said she withdrawing her arm angrily he did not even seem to notice it so great was his preoccupation with the german lady madame said he to her these words that your companion has repeated to me in your name are some german lines which i read in a house which is perhaps known to you the blue domino pressed oliva's arm who thereupon bowed in assent that house said the cardinal hesitatingly is it not called schoenbrunn she again made a gesture of assent they were written on a table of cherry wood with a gold bodkin by an august hand yes bowed oliva again the cardinal stopped he tottered and leaned against the pillar for support madame de lamotte stood by watching this strange scene then the cardinal touching the blue domino said this is the conclusion of the quotation but he who sees everywhere the loved object who recognizes her by a flower by a perfume through the thickest veils he can still be silent his voice in his heart and if one other understands him he is happy oh they are speaking german here said a young voice from an approaching group let us listen do you speak german marshal 
No, Monseigneur. You, Charny? Yes, Your Highness. Here is Monsieur le Comte d'Artois, said Olivas softly to her companion. A crowd followed them, and many were passing round. Take care, gentlemen, said the blue domino. Monsieur, replied the prince, the people are pushing us. At this moment some invisible hand pulled Oliva's hood from behind, and her mask fell. She replaced it as quickly as possible with a half-terrified cry, which was echoed by one of affected disquiet from her companion. Several others around looked, no little bewildered. The cardinal nearly fainted, and Madame de Lamotte supported him. The pressure of the crowd separated the Comte d'Artois and his party from them. Then the blue domino approached the cardinal and said— this is indeed an irreparable misfortune this lady's honor is at your mercy oh monsieur murmured the cardinal who was much agitated let us go quickly said the blue domino to oliva and they moved away now i know said madame de lamotte to herself what the cardinal meant was impossible he took this woman for the queen but what an effect it has had on him would you like to leave the ball asked monsieur de rohan in a feeble voice as you please monseigneur replied jeanne i do not find much interest here do you none at all they pushed their way through the crowd the cardinal who was tall looked all around him to try and see again the vision which had disappeared but blue, white, and gray dominoes were everywhere, and he could distinguish no one. They had been some time in the carriage, and he had not yet spoken to Jean. End of chapter 23 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 24 of The Queen's Necklace by Alexander Dumas Translated by Henry L. Williams This LibriVox recording is in the public domain the examination at last jean said where is this carriage taking me to cardinal back to your own house countess my house in the faubourg yes countess a very small house to contain so many charms they soon stopped jean alighted and he was preparing to follow her but she stopped him and said it is very late cardinal adieu then said he and he drove away absorbed with the scene at the ball jean entered alone into her new house six lackeys waited for her in the hall and she looked at them as calmly as though she had been used to it all her life where are my femme de chambre said she one of the men advanced respectfully two women wait for madame in her room call them the valet obeyed where do you usually sleep said jean to them when they entered we have no place as yet said one of them we can sleep wherever madame pleases where are the keys here madame well for this night you shall sleep out of the house the women looked at her in surprise you have some place to go to said jean certainly madame but it is late still if madame wishes 
and these men can accompany you she continued dismissing the valets also who seemed rather pleased when shall we return asked one of them to-morrow at noon they seemed more astonished than ever but Jeanne looked so imperious that they did not speak. "'Is there anyone else here?' she asked. "'No one, madame. It is impossible for madame to remain like this. Surely you must have someone here.' "'I want no one.' "'The house might take fire. Madame might be ill.' "'Go, all of you,' said Jeanne, "'and take this.' added she, giving them money from her purse. They all thanked her and disappeared, saying to each other that they had found a strange mistress. Jean then locked the doors and said triumphantly, "'Now I am alone here, in my own house.' She now commenced an examination, admiring each thing individually. The ground floor contained a bathroom, dining-room, three drawing-rooms, and two morning-rooms. The furniture of these rooms was handsome, though not new. It pleased Jean better than if it had been furnished expressly for her. All the rich antiques disdained by fashionable ladies, the marvellous pieces of carved ebony, the glass lustres, the gothic clocks, the chef d'oeuvre of carving and enamel, the screens with embroidered Chinese figures and the immense vases, threw Jean into indescribable raptures. Here on a chimney-piece two gilded tritons were bearing branches of coral, upon which were hung jeweled fruits. In another place, on a gilded console table, was an enormous elephant, with sapphires hanging from his ears, supporting a tower filled with little bottles of scent. Books in gilt bindings were on rosewood shelves. One room was hung with gobelin tapestry, and furnished in grey and gold. Another, panelled in paintings by Fernet. The small rooms contained pictures. The whole was evidently the collection of years. Jean examined it all with delight. Then, as her domino was inconvenient, she went into a room to put on a dressing-gown of wadded silk, and secure of meeting no one. She wandered from room to room, continuing her examination, till at last, her light nearly exhausted, she returned to her bedroom which was hung with embroidered blue satin. She had seen everything, and admired everything. There only remained herself to be admired, and she thought, as she undressed before the long mirror, that she was not the object least worthy of admiration in the place. At last, wearied out with pleasurable excitement, she went to bed and soon sank to sleep. End of chapter 24 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter Twenty Five of the Queen's Necklace by Alexander Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Academy of Monsieur Bossire. Bossire had followed the advice of the Blue Domino and repaired to the place of meeting in the Rue de Portefeuille. He was frightened by the apparent exclusion which his companions had seemed to meditate in not communicating their plans to him, and he knew none of them to be particularly scrupulous. He had acquired the reputation among them of a man to be feared. It was not wonderful, as he had been a soldier and worn a uniform. He knew how to draw a sword, and he had a habit of looking very fierce at the slightest word that displeased him, all things which appear rather terrifying to those of doubtful courage, especially when they have reason to shun the eclat of a duel and the curiosity of the police. 
Osire consented, therefore, on revenging himself by frightening them a little. It was a long way, but Beausire had money in his pocket, so he took a coach, promised the driver an extra franc to go fast, and to make up for the absence of his sword he assumed as fierce a look as he could on entering the room. It was a large hall full of tables at which were seated about twenty players, drinking beer or syrups and smiling now and then on some highly rouged women who sat near them. They were playing faro at the principal table, but the stakes were low and the excitement small in proportion. On the entrance of the domino, all the women smiled on him half in raillery and half in coquetry, for Monsieur Beausire was a favorite among them. However, he advanced in silence to the table without noticing any one. One of the players, who was a good-humored-looking fellow, said to him, "'Corbleu, Chevalier! You come from the ball looking out of sorts!' "'Is your domino uncomfortable?' said another. "'No, it is not my domino!' replied Beausire gruffly. "'Ah!' said the banker. "'He has been unfaithful to us. He has been playing somewhere else and lost.' "'It is not I who am unfaithful to my friends. I am incapable of it. I leave that to others.' "'What do you mean, dear Chevalier?' "'I know what I mean,' replied he. "'I thought I had friends here.' "'Certainly,' replied several voices. "'Well, I was deceived.' "'How?' "'You plan things without me.' Several of the members began to protest it was not true. "'I know better,' said Beausire. "'And these false friends shall be punished.' He put his hand to his side to feel for his sword, but as it was not there he only shook his pocket and the gold rattled. "'Aho!' said the banker. "'Monsieur Beausire has not lost. Come, will you not play?' "'Thanks,' said Beausire. "'I will keep what I have got.' "'Only one, Louis,' said one of the women caressingly. "'I do not play for miserable, Louis,' said he. "'We play for millions here tonight. "'Yes, gentlemen, millions!' "'He had worked himself up into a great state of excitement "'and was losing sight of all prudence "'when a blow from behind made him turn, "'and he saw by him a great dark figure stiff and upright "'when with two shining black eyes "'he met Beausire's furious glance with a ceremonious bow.' "'The Portuguese!' said Beausire. "'The Portuguese!' echoed the ladies, who abandoned Beausire to crowd round the newcomer, he being there a special pet as he was in the habit of bringing them sweetmeats, sometimes wrapped up in notes of forty or fifty francs. This man was one of the twelve associates. He was used as a bait at their society. It was agreed that he should lose a hundred louis a week as an inducement to allure strangers to play.' He was therefore considered a useful man. He was also an agreeable one, and was held in much consideration. Beausire became silent on seeing him. The Portuguese took his place at the table and put down twenty louis, which he soon lost, thereby making some of those who had been stripped before forget their losses. All the money received by the banker was dropped into a well under the table, and he was forbidden to wear long sleeves lest he should conceal any within them. 
although the other members generally took the liberty of searching both sleeves and pockets before they left. Several now put on their great coats and took leave, some happy enough to escort the ladies. A few, however, after making a feint to go, returned into another room, and here the twelve associates soon found themselves united. "'Now we will have an explanation!' "'Do not speak so loud,' said the Portuguese in good French. Then they examined the doors and windows to make certain that all was secure, drew the curtain close, and seated themselves. "'I have a communication to make,' said the Portuguese. It was lucky, however, I arrived when I did, for Monsieur Beausire was seized this evening with a most imprudent flow of eloquence. Beausire tried to speak. Silence, said the Portuguese. Let us not waste words. You know my ideas beforehand very well. You are a man of talent and may have guessed it, but I think are more proper should never overcome self-interest. I do not understand. Monsieur Beausire hoped to be the first to make this proposition. What proposition? cried the rest. Concerning the two million franc, said Beausire. Two million franc, cried they. First, said the Portuguese, you exaggerate. It is not as much as that. We do not know what you are talking of, said the banker. But are not the less all ears, said another. The Portuguese drank off a large glass of orgeat and then began. The necklace is not worth more than one million five hundred thousand franc. Oh, then it concerns a necklace, said Beausire. Yes. Did you not mean the same thing? Perhaps. Now he is going to be discreet after his former folly, said the Portuguese. But time presses, for the ambassador will arrive in eight days. This matter becomes complicated, said the banker. A necklace? One million five hundred thousand franc? and an ambassador pray explain in a few words said the portuguese messieurs bomer and bozange offered to the queen a necklace worth that sum she refused it and now they do not know what to do with it for none but a royal fortune could buy it well i have found the royal personage who will buy this necklace and obtain the custody of it from Messieurs Bomer and Bossange, and that is my gracious sovereign, the Queen of Portugal. We understand it less than ever, said the associates. And I not at all, thought Beausire. Then he said aloud, Explain yourself clearly, dear Monsieur Manuel. Our private differences should give place to the public interest. I acknowledge you the author of the idea and renounce all right to its paternity. Therefore, speak on. Willingly, said Manuel, drinking a second glass of Orgeat. The embassy is vacant just now. The new ambassador, Monsieur de Souza, 
will not arrive for a week. Well, he may arrive sooner. They all looked stupefied, but Beausire, who said, Do you not see some ambassador, whether true or false? Exactly, said Manuel. And the ambassador who arrives may desire to buy this necklace for the Queen of Portugal, and treat accordingly with Messrs. Bomer and Bossange. That is all. But, said the banker, they would not allow such a necklace to pass into the hands of Monsieur de Souza himself without good security. Oh, I have thought of all that. The ambassador's house is vacant, with the exception of the Chancellor, who is a Frenchman, and speaks bad Portuguese, and who is therefore delighted when the Portuguese speak French to him, as he does not then betray himself. But who likes to speak Portuguese to the French, as it sounds grand? Well, we will present ourselves to this Chancellor with all the appearances of a new legation." appearances are something said beausire but the credentials are much more we will have them replied manuel no one can deny that don manuel is an invaluable man said beausire well our appearances and the credentials having convinced the chancellor of our identity we will establish ourselves at the house. That is pretty bold, said Beausire. It is necessary and quite easy, said Manuel. The Chancellor will be convinced, and if he should afterwards become less credulous, we will dismiss him. I believe an ambassador has the right to change his Chancellor, certainly then when we are masters of the hotel our first operation will be to wait on messieurs burma and bossage but you forget one thing said beausire our first act should be to ask an audience of the king and then we should break down uh, the famous riza bey who was presented to louis the fourteenth as ambassador from the shah of persia spoke persian at least and there were no servants here capable of knowing how well but we should be found out at once we should be told directly that our portuguese was remarkably french and we should be sent to the bastille we will escape this danger by remaining quietly at home then monsieur Balmer will not believe in our ambassadorship monsieur Balmer will be told that we are sent merely to buy the necklace we will show him our order to do this as we shall before have shown it to our chancellor only we must try to avoid showing it to the ministers, for they are suspicious and might find a host of little flaws. Oh, yes, cried they all. Let us avoid the ministers. But if Messieurs Burma and Bossange require money on account, asked Beausire, that would complicate the affair, 
certainly for continued beausire it is usual for an ambassador to have letters of credit at least if not ready money and here we should fail you find plenty of reasons why it should fail said manuel but nothing to make it succeed it is because i wish it to succeed that i speak of the difficulties but stop a thought strikes me in every ambassador's house there is a strong box yes but it may be empty well if it be we must ask monsieur Burmer and bossange who are their correspondents at lisbon and we will sign and stamp for them letters of credit for the sum demanded that will do said manuel i was engrossed with the grand idea but had not sufficiently considered the details now let us think of arranging the parts said beausire don manuel will be ambassador certainly they all said and monsieur beausire my secretary and interpreter said manuel why so said beausire rather uneasily i am monsieur de souza and must not speak a word of french for i know that that gentleman speaks nothing but portuguese and very little of that you on the contrary monsieur beausire who have travelled and have acquired french habits who speak portuguese also very badly said beausire quite enough to deceive a parisian and then you know the most useful agents will have the largest shares assuredly said the others well it is agreed i am secretary and interpreter then as to the money it shall be divided into twelve parts but i as ambassador and author of the scheme shall have a share and a half monsieur beausire the same as interpreter and because he partly shared my idea and also a share and a half to him who sells the jewels so far then it is settled we will arrange the minor details to-morrow for it is very late said beausire who was thinking of oliva left at the ball with the blue domino towards whom in spite of his readiness in giving away louis d'or he did not feel very friendly no no we will finish at once said the others what is to be prepared a travelling carriage with the arms of monsieur de souza said beausire that would take too long to paint and to dry said manuel then we must say that the ambassador's carriage broke down on the way and he was forced to use that of the secretary i must have a carriage and my arms will do for that besides we will have plenty of bruises and injuries on the carriage and especially round the arms and no one will think of them but the rest of the embassy we will arrive in the evening it is the best time to make a debut and you shall all follow next day when we have prepared the way very well but 
every ambassador besides a secretary must have a valet de chambre you captain said don manuel addressing one of the gang shall take this part the captain bowed and the money for the purchases said manuel i have nothing i have a little said beausire but it belongs to my mistress what we have in our fund your keys gentlemen said the banker each drew out a key which opened one of the twelve locks in the table so that none of these honest associates could open it without all the others they went to look one hundred and ninety-eight louis besides the reserve fund said the banker give them to monsieur beausire and me it is not too much said manuel give us two-thirds and leave the rest said beausire with a generosity which won all their hearts don manuel and beausire received therefore one hundred and thirty-two louis and thirty-six remained for the others they then separated having fixed a rendezvous for the next day beausire rolled up his domino under his arm and hastened to the rue dauphine where he hoped to find oliva in possession of some new louis d'or end of chapter twenty five recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter twenty six of the queen's necklace by alexandre dumas translated by henry l williams this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Ambassador On the evening of the next day, a traveling carriage passed through the Barriere d'Enfer, so covered with dust and scratches that no one could discern the arms. The four horses that drew it went at a rapid pace, until it arrived before an hotel of handsome appearance in the Rue de la Jusienne, at the door of which two men, one of whom was in full dress, were waiting. The carriage entered the courtyard of the hotel, and one of the persons waiting approached the door and commenced speaking in bad Portuguese. "'Who are you?' said a voice from the inside, speaking the language perfectly. "'The unworthy Chancellor of the Embassy, Your Excellency.' "'Very well. Mon Dieu! How badly you speak our language, my dear Chancellor. But where are we to go?' this way monseigneur this is a poor reception said don manuel as he got out of the carriage leaning on the arms of his secretary and valet your excellency must pardon me said the chancellor but the courier announcing your arrival only reached the hotel at two o'clock to-day i was absent on some business and when i returned found your excellency's letter I have only had time to have the rooms opened and lighted. Very good. It gives me great pleasure to see the illustrious person of our ambassador. We desire to keep as quiet as possible, said Don Manuel, until we receive further orders from Lisbon. But pray show me to my room, for I am dying with fatigue my secretary will give you all necessary directions the chancellor bowed respectfully to beausire who returned it and then said we will speak french sir i think it will be better for both of us yes murmured the chancellor 
I shall be more at my ease, for I confess that my pronunciation— So I hear, interrupted Beausire. I will take the liberty to say to you, sir, as you seem so amiable, that I trust Monsieur de Souza will not be annoyed at my speaking such bad Portuguese. Oh, not at all as you speak French. French? cried the Chancellor. I was born in the Rue Saint-Honoré. Oh, that will do, said Beausire. Your name is Ducourneau, is it not? Yes, monsieur, rather a lucky one, as it has a Spanish termination. It is very flattering to me that monsieur knew my name. Oh, you are well known, so well that we did not bring a chancellor from Lisbon with us. I am very grateful, monsieur, but I think monsieur de Souza is ringing. Let us go and see. They found Manuel attired in a magnificent dressing gown. Several boxes and dressing cases of rich appearance were already unpacked and lying about. Enter, said he to the chancellor. Will his excellency be angry if I answer in French? said Ducourneau in a low voice to Beau's sire. Oh, no, I am sure of it. Monsieur Ducourneau therefore paid the compliments in French. Oh, it is very convenient that you speak French so well, Monsieur Ducourneau, said the ambassador. He takes me for a Portuguese, thought the chancellor with joy. Now, said Manuel, can I have supper? Certainly, Your Excellency. The Palais Royal is only two steps from here, and I know an excellent restaurant from which Your Excellency can have a good supper in a very short time. Order it in your own name, if you please, Monsieur de Corneau. And if Your Excellency will permit me, I will add to it some bottles of capital wine. Oh, our Chancellor keeps a good cellar, then, said Beausire jokingly. It is my only luxury, replied he, and now by the wax lights they could remark his rather red nose and puffed cheeks. Very well, Monsieur de Corneau, bring your wine and sup with us. Such an honor! Oh, no etiquette tonight. I am only a traveler. I shall not begin to be ambassador till tomorrow. Then we will talk of business. Monseigneur will permit me to arrange my toilet. Oh, you are superb already, said Beausire. Yes, but this is a reception dress and not a gala one. Remain as you are, monsieur, and give the time to expediting our supper. Ducourneau, delighted, left the room to fulfill his orders. Then the three rogues left together began to discuss their affairs. "'Does this Chancellor sleep here?' said Manuel. "'No, the fellow has a good cellar, and I doubt not. A snug lodging somewhere or other, he is an old bachelor.' "'There is a Suisse.' "'We must get rid of him, and there are a few valets, whom we must replace tomorrow with our own friends.' "'Who is in the kitchen department?' no one 
the old ambassador did not live here he had a house in the town what about the strong box oh on that point we must consult the chancellor it is a delicate matter i charge myself with it said beausire we are already capital friends hush here he comes ducourneau entered quite out of breath he had ordered the supper and fetched six bottles of wine from his cellar and was looking quite radiant at the thoughts of the coming repast will your excellency descend to the dining-room no we will sup here here is the wine then said ducourneau it sparkles like rubies said beausire holding it to the light sit down monsieur ducourneau my valet will wait upon us what day did the last dispatches arrive immediately after the departure of your excellency's predecessor are the affairs of the embassy in good order oh yes monseigneur no money difficulties no debts not that i know of because if there are we must begin by paying them oh your excellency will have nothing of that sort to do all the accounts were paid up three weeks ago and the day after the departure of the late ambassador one hundred thousand francs arrived here one hundred thousand francs said beausire yes in gold so said beausire the box contains one hundred thousand three hundred and eighty francs monsieur it is not much said manuel coldly but happily her majesty has placed funds at my disposal i told you continued he turning to beausire that i thought we should need it at paris your excellency took wise precautions said beausire respectfully from the time of this important communication the hilarity of the party went on increasing a good supper consisting of salmon crabs and sweets contributed to their satisfaction ducourneau quite at his ease ate enough for ten and did not fail either in demonstrating that a parisian could do honor to port and sherry end of chapter twenty six recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter twenty seven of the queen's necklace by alexander dumas translated by henry l williams this librivox recording is in the public domain messieurs Burmer and bossange monsieur du corneau blessed heaven repeatedly for sending an ambassador who preferred his speaking french to portuguese and liked portuguese wines better than french ones at last manuel expressed a wish to go to bed du corneau rose and left the room although it must be confessed he found some difficulty in the operation it was now the turn of the valet to have supper which he did with great good will the next day the hotel assumed an air of business all the bureaux were opened and everything indicated life in the recently deserted place the report soon spread in the neighborhood that some great personages had arrived from portugal during the night this although what was wanted to give them credit 
could not but inspire the conspirators with some alarm, for the police had quick ears and argus eyes. Still, they thought that by audacity combined with prudence, they might easily keep them from becoming suspicious until they had had time to complete their business. Two carriages containing the other nine associates arrived, as agreed upon, and they were soon installed in their different departments. Beausire induced Ducourneau himself to dismiss the porter, on the ground that he did not speak Portuguese. They were therefore in a good situation to keep off all unwelcome visitors. About noon, Don Manuel, gaily dressed, got into a carriage which they had hired for five hundred francs a month, and set out with his secretary for the residence of Messieurs Bermer and Bossange. Their servant knocked at the door, which was secured with immense locks and studded with great nails, like that of a prison. A servant opened it. "'His Excellency the Ambassador of Portugal desires to speak to Messieurs Bermer and Bossange.' They got out, and Monsieur Bermer came to them in a few moments, and received them with a profusion of polite speeches. But seeing that the ambassador did not deign even a smile in reply, looked somewhat disconcerted. "'His Excellency does not speak or understand French, sir, and you must communicate to him through me. If you do not speak Portuguese,' said Beausire. "'No, monsieur, I do not.' Manuel then spoke in Portuguese to Beausire, who, turning to Monsieur Burmer, said, "'His Excellency, Monsieur le Comte de Souza, ambassador from the Queen of Portugal, desires me to ask you if you have not in your possession a beautiful diamond necklace.' Burmer looked at him scrutinizingly. "'A beautiful diamond necklace,' repeated he the one of which you offered to the queen of france and which our gracious queen has heard of monsieur said Burmer, is an officer of the ambassadors his secretary monsieur don manuel was seated with the air of a great man looking carelessly at the pictures which hung round the room monsieur Burmer, said beausire abruptly do you not understand what i am saying to you yes sir answered Burmer, rather startled by the manner of the secretary because i see his excellency is becoming impatient excuse me sir said Burmer, coloring but i dare not show the necklace except in my partner's presence well sir call your partner don manuel approached beausire and began again talking to him in portuguese his excellency says interpreted he that he has already waited ten minutes and that he is not accustomed to be kept waiting Burmer bowed and rang the bell a minute afterwards monsieur beausange entered Burmer explained the matter to him who after looking scrutinizingly at the portuguese left the room with a key given him by his partner, and soon returned with a case in one hand. The other was hidden under his coat, but they distinctly saw the shining barrel of a pistol. "'However we may look,' said Manuel gravely in Portuguese to his companion, "'these gentlemen seem to take us for pickpockets rather than ambassadors.' 
Monsieur Bolsange advanced, put the case into the hands of Manuel. He opened it and then cried angrily to his secretary, "'Monsieur, tell these gentlemen that they tire my patience. I ask for a diamond necklace and they bring me paste. Tell them I will complain to the ministers and will have them thrown into the Bastille, impertinent people who play tricks upon an ambassador.' and he threw down the case in such a passion that they did not need an interpretation of his speech, but began explaining most humbly that in France it was usual to show only the models of diamonds, so as not to tempt people to robbery were they so inclined. Manuel, with an indignant gesture, walked towards the door. "'His Excellency desires me to tell you,' said Beausire, "'that he is sorry that people like Messieurs Burma and Bossange jewelers to the queen should not know better how to distinguish an ambassador from a rogue and that he will return to his hotel the jewelers began to utter most respectful protestations but manuel walked on and beausire followed him to the ambassador's hotel rue de la jussienne said beausire to the footman a lost business groaned the valet as they set off on the contrary a safe one in an hour these men will follow us end of chapter twenty seven recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter twenty eight of the queen's necklace by alexander dumas translated by henry l williams this librivox recording is in the public domain the ambassador's hotel on returning to their hotel, these gentlemen found Ducourneau dining quietly in his bureau. Beausire desired him, when he had finished, to go up and see the ambassador, and added, "'You will see, my dear Chancellor, that Monsieur de Souza is not an ordinary man.' "'I see that already.' "'His Excellency,' continued Beausire, "'wishes to take a distinguished position in Paris.' and this residence will be unsupportable to him. He will require a private house. That will complicate the diplomatic business, said Ducourneau. We shall have to go so often to obtain his signature. His Excellency will give you a carriage, Monsieur Ducourneau. A carriage for me? Certainly. Every chancellor of a great ambassador should have a carriage. But we will talk of that afterwards. His Excellency wishes to know where the strong box is. Upstairs, close to his own room. So far from you? For greater safety, sir. Robbers would find greater difficulty in penetrating there than here on the ground floor. Robbers? said Beausire disdainfully, for such a little sum. One hundred thousand francs, said Ducourneau. It is easy to see Monsieur de Souza is rich, but there is not more kept in any ambassador's house in Europe. Shall we examine it now? said Beausire. I am rather in a hurry to attend to my own business. "'Immediately, monsieur.' They went up, and the money was found all right. 
Ducourneau gave his key to Beausire, who kept it for some time, pretending to admire its ingenious construction, while he cleverly took the impression of it in wax. Then he gave it back, saying, "'Keep it, Monsieur Ducourneau. It is better in your hands than in mine. Let us now go to the ambassador.' They found Don Manuel drinking chocolate, and apparently much occupied with a paper covered with ciphers. "'Do you understand the ciphers used in the late correspondence?' said he to the Chancellor. "'No, Your Excellency.' "'I should wish you to learn it. It will save me a great deal of trouble. What about the box?' said he to Poe's sire. "'Perfectly correct, like everything else with which Monsieur Ducourneau has any connection.' "'Well,' sit down monsieur ducourneau i want you to give me some information do you know any honest jewellers in paris there are messieurs Burmer and bossange jewellers to the queen but they are precisely the people i do not wish to employ i have just quitted them never to return have they had the misfortune to displease your excellency seriously monsieur ducourneau oh if i dared speak you may i would ask how these people who bear so high a name they are perfect jews monsieur ducourneau and their bad behavior will make them lose a million or two i was sent by her gracious majesty to make an offer to them for a diamond necklace oh the famous necklace which had been ordered by the late king for madame du barry you are a valuable man sir you know everything well now i shall not buy it shall i interfere monsieur ducourneau oh only as a diplomatic affair if you knew them at all bossange is a distant relation of mine at this moment a valet opened the door and announced messieurs burma and bossange don manuel rose quickly and said in an angry tone send those people away the valet made a step forward no you do it said he to his secretary. "'I beg you to allow me,' said Ducourneau, and he advanced to meet them. "'There, this affair is destined to fail,' said Manuel. "'No, Ducourneau will arrange it.' "'I am convinced he will embroil it. You said at the jewellers that I did not understand French.' and Ducourneau will let out that I do. "'I will go,' said Beausire. "'Perhaps that is equally dangerous.' "'Oh, no! Only leave me to act!' Beausire went down. Ducourneau had found the jewellers much more disposed to politeness and confidence since entering the hotel. Also, on seeing an old friend, Beausange was delighted. "'You here?' said he and he approached to embrace him ah 
you are very amiable to-day my rich cousin said ducourneau oh said bossange if we have been a little separated forgive and render me a service i came to do it thanks you are then attached to the embassy yes i want advice on what on this embassy i am the chancellor that is well but about the ambassador i come to you on his behalf to tell you that he begs you to leave his hotel as quickly as possible the two jewellers looked at each other disconcerted because continued ducourneau it seems you have been uncivil to him but listen it is useless said beausire who suddenly appeared his excellency told you to dismiss them do it but monsieur i cannot listen said beausire the chancellor took his relation by the shoulder and pushed him out saying you have spoilt your fortune mon dieu how susceptible these foreigners are when one is called souza and has nine hundred thousand francs a year one has a right to be anything said ducourneau ah sighed bossange i told you burma you were too stiff about it well replied the obstinate german at least if we do not get his money he will not get our necklace ducourneau laughed you do not understand either a portuguese or an ambassador bourgeois that you are i will tell you what they are one ambassador monsieur de potemkin bought every year for his queen on the first of january a basket of cherries which cost one hundred thousand crowns one thousand francs a cherry well monsieur de souza will buy up the mines of brazil till he finds a diamond as big as all yours put together if it costs him twenty years of his income what does he care he has no children and he was going to shut the door when bossange said arrange this affair and you shall have i am incorruptible said he and he closed the door that evening the ambassador received this letter monseigneur a man who waits for your orders and desires to present you our respectful excuses is at the door of your hotel and at a word from your excellency he will place in the hands of one of your people the necklace of which you did us the honour to speak deign to receive monseigneur the assurances of our most profound respect burma and bossange well said manuel on reading this note the necklace is ours not so said beausire it will only be ours when we have bought it we must buy it but remember your excellency does not know french yes i know but this chancellor oh i will send him away on some diplomatic mission 
you are wrong. He will be our security with these men. But he will say that you know French. No, he will not. I will tell him not to do so. Very well, then. We will have up the man. The man was introduced. It was Bermer himself, who had made many bows and excuses and offered the necklace for examination. Sit down, said Beausire. His Excellency pardons you. Ah, how much trouble to sell, sighed Bermer. How much trouble to steal, thought Beausire. End of chapter 28. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 29 of The Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Bargain. Then the ambassador consented to examine the necklace in detail. Monsieur Bomer showed each individual beauty. On the whole, said Beausire, interpreting for Manuel, His Excellency sees nothing to complain of in the necklace, but there are ten of the diamonds rather spotted. Oh, said Bomer. His Excellency, interrupted Beausire, understands diamonds perfectly. The Portuguese nobility play with the diamonds of Brazil, as children do here with glass beads. Whatever it may be, however, said Bermer, this necklace is the finest collection of diamonds in all Europe. That is true, said Manuel. Then Beausire went on. Well, Monsieur Bermer, her majesty the queen of portugal has heard of this necklace and has given monsieur de souza a commission to buy it if he approved of the diamonds which he does now what is the price one million six hundred thousand francs beausire repeated this to the ambassador it is one hundred thousand francs too much replied manuel monseigneur replied the jeweller one cannot fix the exact price of the diamonds on a thing like this it has been necessary in making this collection to undertake voyages and make searches and inquiries which no one would believe but myself one hundred thousand francs too dear repeated manuel and if his excellency says this said Beausire. It must be his firm conviction, for he never bargains. Burma was shaken. Nothing reassures a suspicious merchant so much as a customer who beats down the price. However, he said after a minute's thought, I cannot consent to a deduction which will make all the difference of loss or profit to myself and my partner. Don Manuel, after hearing this translated, Rose and Beausire returned the case to the jeweller. "'I will, however, speak to Monsieur Beausange about it,' contained Bermer. "'I am to understand that His Excellency offers one million five hundred thousand francs for the necklace?' "'Yes. He never draws back from what he has said.' 
but monsieur you understand that i must consult with my partner certainly monsieur burma certainly repeated don manuel after hearing this translated but i must have a speedy answer well monseigneur if my partner will accept the price i will good it then only remains accepting the consent of monsieur bossange to settle the mode of payment there will be no difficulty about that said bossire how do you wish to be paid oh said Burmer, laughing if ready money be possible what do you call ready money said bossire coldly oh um, i know no one has a million and a half of franc ready to put down said Burmer, sighing certainly not still i cannot consent to dispense with some ready money that is but reasonable then turning to manuel how much will your excellency pay down to monsieur Burmer? one hundred thousand francs beausire repeated this and when the remainder asked Burmer. when we shall have had time to send to lisbon oh said Burmer, we have a correspondent there and by writing to him yes said beausire laughing ironically write to him and ask if monsieur de souza is solvent and if her majesty be good for one million four hundred thousand francs we cannot sir let this necklace leave france forever without informing the queen and our respect and loyalty demand that we should once more give her the refusal of it it is just said manuel with dignity i should wish a portuguese merchant to act in the same way i am very happy that monseigneur approves of my conduct then all is settled subject only to the consent of monsieur bossange and the reiterated refusal of her majesty i ask three days to settle these two points on one side said beausire one hundred thousand francs down the necklace to be placed in my hands who will accompany you to lisbon in the honor of your correspondents who are also our bankers the whole of the money to be paid in three months yes monseigneur said Burmer, bowing manuel returned it and the jeweller took leave when they were alone manuel said angrily to beausire please to explain what the devil you mean by this journey to portugal are you mad why not have the jewels here in exchange for our money you think yourself too really ambassador replied beausire you are not yet quite monsieur de souza to this jeweller if he had not thought so he would not have treated agreed but every man in possession of one million five hundred thousand francs holds himself above all the ambassadors in the world and every one who gives that value in exchange for pieces of paper wishes first to know what the papers are worth then you mean to go to portugal you who cannot speak portuguese properly 
I tell you, you are mad. Not at all. You shall go yourself if you like. Thank you, said Don Manuel. There are reasons why I would rather not return to Portugal. Well, I tell you, Monsieur Boma would never give up the diamonds for mere papers. Papers signed Sousa? I said you thought yourself a real Sousa. Better say at once that we have failed, said Manuel. Not at all. Come here, Captain, said Beausire to the valet. You know what we are talking of? Yes. You have listened to everything? Certainly. Very well. Do you think I have committed a folly? I think you perfectly right. Explain why. Monsieur Burma would, on the other plan, have been incessantly watching us, and all connected with us. Now, with the money and the diamonds both in his hands, he can have no suspicion, but will set out quietly for Portugal, which, however, he will never reach. Is it not so, Monsieur Beausire? Ha! You are a lad of discernment. Explain your plan said manuel about fifty leagues from here said beausire this clever fellow here will come and present two pistols at the heads of our postilions will steal from us all we have including the diamonds and will leave monsieur burma half dead with blows oh i did not understand exactly that said the valet i thought you would embark for portugal and then monsieur burma like all germans will like the sea and walk on the deck one day he may slip and fall over and the necklace will be supposed to have perished with him oh i understand said manuel that is lucky at last only replied manuel for stealing diamonds one is simply sent to the bastille but for murder one is hanged but for stealing diamonds one may be taken for a little push to monsieur burma we should never even be suspected well we will settle all this afterwards said beausire at present let us conduct our business in style, so that they may say, if he was not really ambassador, at least he seemed like one. End of chapter 29 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia